Hey guys, this is Shiloh. And this is David. This is Who in the World Podcast. Wow, Dave, when you first came up with the idea to do a series called Who in the World, I thought it was a great idea. Right away, my mind went to not just who in the world, but what in the world or where in the world are you talking about? So for my first subject, Dave, I think I'm going to go to a place. What place on earth can claim it originates from one of the oldest civilizations that's had more types of governments than you can shake a stick at? There's been a multitude of religious thoughts and ideas that have come through this area. The art that has come from this place is recognizable throughout the whole world and has influenced the daily lives of countless people. It's a key link in uniting East and West. It was a place that helped push human advancement. If landing on the moon was important in human advancement, then we could say that this place may just be as important as the moon landing. You know, if the Buddha is all about peace, and Hercules is one of the greatest warrior adventurers of all time, where do they meet and become friends, Dave? What area may have inspired one of the iconic sounds for a popular science fiction story? Where do Nazis, Alexander the Great, and Han Chida try to claim, Dave? Wow, you had me in Nazis. Where in the world are you talking about, Shiloh? Well, Dave, I'm going to give us our first clue to this area. We're going to focus in on Central Asia. Picture of man, Dave, going on a journey. Our journey begins thousands of years ago. Now, in school, most people studied about the Mesopotamian culture and the Egyptian civilization. But there's a third civilization that's dated to the same time that many people forget about. Do you know what that civilization is, Dave? Uh, Texas? (laughs) Man, so early on in in the episode, we've already gotten to Texas. But you know what? Unfortunately, it was not Texas that was developing at the same time as Mesopotamia and Egypt. It was the Indus Valley Civilization. So oh, while the man. while the pyramids were being built, and like the city of Ur in Mesopotamia is is powerful, the Indus Valley Civilization is thriving. Now, as with most other podcasts, it's a custom to say a disclaimer before you start to say the words wrong. So before I pronounce my first word wrong, I would like to ask for forgiveness and that, yes, the mispronunciations will now begin. One wait, thing- wait, wait. Now, <laughs> just real quick question. Yeah. So when you say Indus River Valley, like in modern, in modern times, like would that be in India? Well, Dave, I think, um, I think we're going to answer that question right now. We're talking okay. about the, yes, the Indus Valley civilization. So Researchers and scientists, archaeologists, they all refer to the same thing with different names. So when we're talking about the Indus Valley Civilization, you might actually see different names. And I'm going to use some of those to maybe spark your interest. But yes, we're going to get to where exactly it is. Right away, um, that Indus Valley Civilization has been called the Harappa Civilization or Harappan Sometimes they use that word Harappa because it's one of the main cities excavated in this area. Another well-known city is uh, Mohenjo-Daro. I love that name, Mohenjo-Daro. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a really cool name. It is. You know, maybe kid number four. These are are two large (laughs) cities excavated in in this civilization, and they roughly fit into the modern areas of Pakistan and further north and northern India. So we're talking about that Central Asia... Uh, northern India, Pakistan area. 
Now, much like the famous Egyptian and Mesopotamian civilizations, the Indus Valley civilization was known for cities, urban development, arranged houses. They had drainage systems. It's even said they might have even had uh, an early form of plumbing. So it's thought that over this large area, there may have been up to 5 million people who lived and thrived. And one thing that I found interesting was they didn't seem to be at war as much as in the Mesopotamian culture. They may have been a little more peaceful. So we'll see. Uh, as, t as more evidence comes out, but that takes us to another city I want to mention, and that's Shortungai. And now I don't have a clue if I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly, because it's a very uh, minor city in this civilization, in this Indus Valley civilization. It was a northernmost colony that had a special product that they produced called lapis lazuli. Is that something you've ever heard of, Dave? Man, I I have never no never. What what is that? Is so, that like something you drink or or eat or or what? <laughs> We're gonna play another part of the game called another part of the show called What is that thing? Lapis lazuli. <laughs> what in the world am I eating right now? <laughs> what am I eating? It's a famous stone known for its blue color, and wow. it was used in jewelry, uh, prized by royalty. And it's been found in various places throughout the Middle East, in Egypt, and in Mesopotamia. So they were basically trading. There was trade going on between the Indus Valley civilization and, and other places. So more than likely, you've seen this lapis lazuli stone. In fact, it's actually one of the features in the King Tut mask. So that, wow. that gold and bluish colors you see, I think around the eyes is actually that lapis lazuli blue. So... What's interesting is we can't say anything for certain about the Indus Valley civilization. We don't know their exact language. It hasn't been deciphered. We don't know about their food, their government structure. And it's particularly interesting. We're, we don't know anything about their religion uh, necessarily. And what's, what's, what's happened is people have tried to link this area of northern India and this civilization to religious uh, beliefs in India regarding Hinduism. But there's really no clear, distinct links with the religion of the Indus Valley and with Hinduism. So this, with time, this civilization gradually declined. And there are a number of different ideas as to why. For example, you know, changes in water, disasters, climate. But to be clear, it didn't just disappear. It slowly faded and it was absorbed into other cultures. And with that, experts say there was some Indo-European or Aryan group that came to the area. Now, this is, might have been by invasion or by a slow migration. There's really no clear explanation. But there's no doubt that if people came into this area, these cultures interacted. So if you're reading about this subject, you're eventually going to come across that word Aryan. Now, sometimes in this area, you might hear that term Indo-Aryan. So there was Indo, or we'd say referring to the Indian culture, and then an Aryan culture. So it's a blend of cultures. Just like we might say the word Greco-Roman, a blend of Greek and Roman cultures. So you might see or that Tex -Mex. term. Or Tex-Mex. Wow. Nailed it, Dave. Tex-Mex. It's a, it's a beautiful blend of culture, right? Yeah. I mean, tacos, burritos, it's wonderful. <laughs> and like amazing uh, enchiladas. Yeah. So we, we do have good enchiladas. Okay, I'm sorry. I... Man, You're, I really think I'm, I think I'm hungry. I'll, I'll stop. To, okay, yeah. Thing. You were you wanted to eat some lapis lazuli, and now you're talking about some. Yeah, but well, I can't. It's a stone. It's a stone. So sometimes you come across that term Indo-Aryan, and it's a blend of the Indian and the Aryan culture. But the real question is, what is Aryan culture, Dave? 
Yeah, that's what I was wondering, you know, because like when I think of like Aryan, I think of, you know, like the Nazis, they like the blonde hair, blue eyes. But like in India, you know, people didn't really look like that now. So, yeah, what are we talking about? Tell, tell us about the culture. That's a great uh, question. And um, this is the second time, yeah, that you've you've peaked up when I said Nazis or when Nazis you're, have been like, into this. Man, yeah. And let's just for, like for the click, sake of our is, listeners. Yeah. This is podcast the Nazis are the... <laughs> clickbait for Dave right now. Yeah, you know, just to be clear, the Nazis are the bad guys, but you know, right. it's everybody's favorite bad guys. You know, it's like they're making a movie about an archaeologist. Well, that doesn't sound that interesting. Yeah, but the bad guys are Nazis. Like, oh, hey, let's watch that. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> Actually, that's that's going to be interesting because that's kind of what I'm going to go into right now. Basically, talking about, I want to take a minute to to go over that term Aryan because it does have a connotation, a negative connotation from its use by the Nazi regime, especially like white uh, supremacists. So many have read how Hitler believed the Aryans were the, like some original master race. But the question is, who were the Aryans? So when it comes to the Aryans, it's a group of people that moved into the area of the Indus Valley civilization. Now, they could have come in peacefully or they could have invaded. They're not exactly sure. But, but what's certain is there is no definite um, location from where they came. So there's different theories, but... You know, people think they might have come from the north in the steppe region, possibly near the Caucasus Mountains, Georgia, Armenia. The point is that the Aryans were not some original white Nordic Europeans like the Nazi party spoke about. Now, what's interesting is that the Aryan, the use of that term Aryan developed as a term to refer to European peoples. So in reality, the Nazis didn't use the term as much as some people might think. You know, you think about it, to be clear, they did use the term Aryan, but when you refer to Europeans in general, that would be no good for the Nazis. Well, the Nazis didn't really like all all people. Like, they hated Slavic right, people. Right, 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 right. They hated Slavic people, for example. So, you know, they couldn't, if, if Aryan was a broad term for European people, that wouldn't quite fit in. They believed that the Germans were the master race. They looked for a direct link from an original Nordic Aryan people to the Germans. And let's face it, there is no link that exists. So in line with that idea of the Aryan being a more broad term referring to European people in general, we might kind of see why American white supremacists use the term as many people that are white Americans have a European background, they they don't have a specific leak to Germans, but they might use that term Aryan almost nowadays more than the actual Nazis did, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And is is the word white supremacists or white supremacists? You know what? I um I think I see a little bit of a a typo in my note here to, on about that. I, I, I appreciate you helping me out with that. Anytime you start to stumble into uh, talking about uh, that subject, there's bound to be some um, some careful stepping going on, you know? So, yeah, to, you know, it, if a mispronunciation is, is, is as bad as it gets, let's just leave it at that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to recap, though, just to be clear, we do not know the origins of the Aryans. So people use that term sometimes to refer to a white race of people, like a master race. If they're using that term at all in that way, they're really buying into an outdated, unsubstantiated theory. No one knows any of those things for certain about where these Aryans came from. And if you really look into Hitler's ideology on the master race, you start to come across things like 
uh, Nordic people coming from Atlantis. It's really, really crazy stuff. So, you know, it has nothing to do with what we know about the Aryans, which is not very much. But talking about this major migration of people that came into the Indus Valley, this pushes us into the next time period known as the Vedic Age, which starts around the year 1500. So we're gonna we're gonna pick that roughly area that time 1500. Now, when you say, are, are we talking 1500 BCE or CE? BCE, you got it, Dave. Yes. Oh so, wow, we are way back there. Okay, right. go on. So yeah, Egypt was building pyramids, and a little while later, now we're into 1500 BCE, which is you know roughly a thousand years after the pyramids were built. So, and I said, we're in an area in northern India, Central Asia, and a time period known as the Vedic Age. And maybe that sounds familiar, that word Vedic, as in the... Darth Vedic? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is when the dark side comes to, to power. No, we're talking about the Vedas of the Hindu religion. Yes, this is when the various Vedas were written, is during the Vedic time period. Yeah, so, okay, and I've heard of those. Like, you oh, had, like the Okay, yeah, go for it. No, no, tell me, which one have you heard of? Like the, the, Rig, the Rig Veda? Dude, you nailed it. The Rig Veda is actually the link to our story. That's the link in our story to the Aryan word that we're, to, we're using. So the word Aryan is actually found in the early Vedas, specifically the Rig Veda. So a brief quote from the Rig Veda, book 7 says, The Arya led, are led by the divine light. So these people are a special noble group. And from this we see it's a group called the Arya. They have a role in the Vedas, but other than that, again... There's a lot of speculation. So the Vedas are written and orally transmitted histories, ideas, thoughts, teachings that have influenced the development of Hinduism. Now, without going too far into the religious ideas there, the Vedas are an important part of Hinduism, but there's a lot more to the beliefs of Hinduism than just the Vedas alone. Hinduism is one of the longest practiced religions in the world. And Dave, how large is the Hindu religion uh, in in sequence of biggest religions, largest religions in the world, which one is Hinduism? I w- it's got to be top three. I mean, well, because India, you got a billion people right there, and then it's popular in a lot of other places. So I would say, I'd say third after Christianity and Islam. You got it. Oh yeah, right on, nailed it, Dave. Yes. You got a point on that one. <laughs> we'll keep we're keeping track. Let me mark that down for you. All right. So the oh, yeah. Vedic age is a time when people known as Aryans are mixing with the people of northern India. And even further north, so this area is all coming to develop a religion and a social class that still persists in that area to today. And this people who inhabit northern India slowly blend together to form a totally unique culture. So you had the, the original people living in India before the Aryans. Now they're, they're blended together. And this takes us now to the time of about 600 BCE. We start to see a new influence coming in from the west. Who would come from the West towards Central Asia and Northern India, Dave? Well, if you're talking like 600 BC, I'm thinking maybe Babylonians? Uh, you Well, right after they get beat, the Medes and the Persians, they're rising. Oh, you're, you're definitely, there you go. You're definitely right. So the Medes and the Persians are on the rise, and as time goes on, parts of Central Asia come to be subjects of the mighty Achaemenid Empire, so or the Persian Empire. So this yeah. takes us to our next major development in Central Asia. That is, we're going to introduce Bactria. Now, Dave, what happens when you Google Bactria? 
uh, it tells you to wash your hands to get all the bacteria off. Yeah, exactly. If you do, well, wanna... I was thinking the camels, the camels, right? Oh, well, yeah. Usually, uh, if you do Google bacteria, they are going to try and redirect you towards bacteria because they think that you didn't spell it right. So yeah, it's like, in, hey, you misspelled in, it. In, uh, yeah, autocorrect is not like people from Texas. Like everything, I cut. It just I have to type it out. <laughs> That's <laughs> those are. Those are some real problems, Dave. So yep. <laughs> Bactria. Bactria is in Central Asia. It's really like a, it, we could say it's a center point in Central Asia. And I'll use modern countries to describe where it is. Um, we're talking about north of India, west of China, south of Russia, and east of Iran. So it's right in that general, large Central Asian steppe region. Oh, okay. Okay, so Bactria grew and shrunk depending on the politics of the time. And in this time, we're talking about the Persian politics. Now, it looks like in old Persian, they would have called it Baxtris. Something like, that sounds like someone that would sew something for you. Oh, she's a Baxtris, <laughs> I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, so I think it's a seamstress. And that is our second sewing joke in the podcast. Well, we had one in the, uh, in the History by the Century podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plug for history by the century. If you if you can't get enough history, go check us out in our other on our other feed. Okay, so Baxtris was a Persian way of you, uh, pronouncing the name. Greek speakers might have called it Bactriani, and English speakers today we use that term Bactria. So beautiful Bactria is called one of the sixteen perfect cities of the Ahura Mazda in the Avesta. So right away, whoa, we're seeing Persian Empire makes religious claims about Central Asia. We already heard about. Uh, the the Vedas. Now we're hearing about the Persian Empire making claims to the area. They claim that this part was created by their god Ahura Mazda of the Zoroastrian religion. Now we're going we're going to a whole nother type of religion here. Zoroastrianism is the main religion of the Persians. It was like Christianity in Rome and Islam in Mecca. So the main prophet Zoroaster was possibly even born in Central Asia, maybe even in Bactria, but. You know, that, there's no evidence on that. You can't confirm or or verify that. But it's possible it was in Central Asia. So briefly, Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest, longest practiced religions of all time. It's a dualistic religion where there's a clear struggle between good and evil. It involves elements like a supreme being, Ahura Mazda. Humans have a free will. And here's the interesting thing, Dave. I know you know about this, that there's a, always a battle between cosmic truth and order against falsehood and lies. So how serious did the Persians take honesty, Dave? Oh, yeah, they took it very, very seriously. Right. Yeah, so Bactria is one of these beautiful cities created by the Ahura Mazda, and it's mentioned in something very... I just find this so fascinating, Dave. It's mentioned in the famous Behistun carving. Have you heard of the Behistun carving? I know you know about the Behistun carving, Dave. You know, I've never heard of the Behestun carving. You know about it, Dave, because it's the huge carving in stone by Darius that explains... What does it explain, Dave? The... How how, well, how, how he beat the... Uh, that, that Oh, yeah, the Babylonians. Well, or, <laughs> it's how he became king and he beat that usurper. Remember how Darius comes and he, uh, he beats the usurper to... Uh, to um, Cambyses and takes over. You know what? That's a, that's another story. You know we're going to keep we're going to keep going. Usually, when you start off with Dave, you know this. Tell everybody else. It's like, oh no, I don't know this. Maybe I should have prepared for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's the best part about um about our this new one is that 
It's it's really brutal. Sorry, I just had that the teacher just called on you and you don't know the answer <laughs> feeling. Like, so the I think be- I had a teacher that called that a type B volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> so the Behistun carving, it, it basically explains how Darius became king of the Persians. And it's an amazing you know, carving. It is the original Mount Rushmore. So Americans go to Mount Rushmore and they go, oh, wow, look at the presidents. They're carved into rock. Well, this was the OG original carving in rock. It's a scene carved into rock on a roadway that tells the story of how Darius became the king. And what's interesting is it's, it mentions Bactria as a territory of the Persians. That's why we're bringing it up. So this inscription is made sometime between 522 and 486. And this is one of my favorite times in history because there's so much going on in the world. So during the years of Darius the Persian, you're also talking about the same time Buddha is alive doing his teachings uh, and also, we're not far off from another great culture clashing right into the people of Central Asia. We are, of course, talking about the other power on the rise in the West coming this way, Dave. Greece. The Greece. Talking about Greece? So, yeah, we're talking okay, about Greece. Okay, I got an answer right. Okay, that's good. Yeah, Greece. <laughs> no, you got, yeah, you, you got just, that other one right. You just... You threw me a softball there, Shiloh. <laughs> so we're talking about the 480s now. We're looking at the 480s BCE. We've made, we've covered a lot of ground. And the time of Darius, and then now his son Xerxes. Remember, Xerxes was famous. Uh, he's a famous king depicted in a movie that came out years ago, popularizing the battle, the battle of Thermopylae and the Spartans. And just a side note to how exciting all these times are. Like I said, again, you have the Buddha is active. You have uh, Queen Esther from the Bible is married to Xerxes. That's what the general thought is, is that the guy that's fighting the 300 Spartans in Thermopylae is married to the biblical Esther. So, you know, religiously speaking, it's an exciting time. The Jews are rebuilding Jerusalem. Confucius is alive in China. He's just finishing off his whole thing. He's about to die soon. But really crazy time that we're talking about right now. But back to the pesky Greeks, Dave, because everybody loves those annoying Greeks. And especially the Persians loved them, Dave. So the Persians smack the Greeks around for a while. And they take these captured Greeks and they say, hey, how do you like living in the Mediterranean climate? And how do you like that wonderful Mediterranean climate food? And the Greeks, you know, obviously they're just like, well, we love it, right? And so where do, where does Xerxes deport a bunch of Greeks to? Man, I have no idea. Where did he send them? He sends them to Central Asia, to Bactria. He says, what? why don't you go live in the desert, rocky, mountainy area of Bactria? So Man, he starts. That to, sounds like uh, that wasn't a very nice thing to do to them. You know, yeah, because like I mean, like you said, Tex-Mex food. You know, the people in Greek were like Greece were just like, man, we love this this Greco-Turco Turkish food, or I mean, it was all <laughs> this Greco-Persian. They called it Grekper. I I need they to find Grek-per. a nice Greco-Turco restaurant. <laughs> that sounds like yeah yeah. They'd probably a fight would break out inside there. Okay, so yeah. Looking at um, getting deported, there is that famous saying, you know, Dave, it's like you can take the Greek out of Greece, but you can't take the Greek out of the Greek. It's just something something like that. I I messed it up in there somewhere. Okay. (laughs) So the Greeks begin to interact with people in India. Now, they've been deported, and they're interacting with people in that area of India and Central Asia. And now some highly influential art and religion is on the rise. So keep that. Put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But... Now, we all know what's going to happen next. We talked about the 480s. We're counting down the clock. It's just the, the clock is winding down. You hit the 400s. That was a good time for Persia. But by the 330s, Dave, 
It is all changing. Who enters the scene? Well, we got Philip and then his more famous son, Alexander the Great. You got it, Dave. Alexander the Great is on his way, and he brings a vengeance on the Persians. He conquers all the way to where? India. You got it. So, and in, in India, also Central Asian area. So, who does he come across? Oh, look, he finds a bunch of Greeks living in the Middle East and Central Asia. He's like, hey, guys, how you doing out here? Now, to be clear, these areas had Greeks, but they weren't in control. Yeah. Well, yeah. were they happy to see Alexander the Great? Were they like, hey, you know, we're Greek. We're glad you're here. Or you, were they like not really Greek I anymore? Couldn't, I couldn't find a source on them saying, hey, buddy, it's good to see you. <laughs> but Bactria was actually, Bactria was actually a last holdout against Alexander the Great. So they were actually trying to fight against him. So yeah, there were Greeks there, but it's not like they were in control. It was other people, ethnically, you could say. So now... You, you just can't stop Alexander the Great unless you're a high-octane-fueled mosquito living in Babylon. But that's a time for... That's another story, Dave. So, yes, the Greeks eventually conquer Bactria. And Alexander the Great establishes a city. Dave, check this out. Alexander the Great establishes a city in Central Asia with the very unique name. Dave, wait for it. Alexandria. Alexandria. <laughs> well, wait. He had Alexandria in, uh, in northern Africa, too. Is this... Right. So, but this is... So is this a different Alexandria? It is, Dave. Did you know that Alexander the Great may have established over 30 cities with the name Alexandria? What? So I mean, this... how do you keep... That seems like, I mean, just for practical purposes, like, how do you tell them apart? Do you, do you like, number them? Is it, like, so Alexandria glad. A, so Alexandria B? Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you asked because the name of this particular city was... It's a very, very unique name. It's called Alexandria the Furthest because, Dave... It, oh. it was the furthest, yeah. But that's, it also yeah. goes by another name, Alexandria Escate, and yeah. that's in. And we're talking in the the Fergana Valley. So basically, you are talking modern day Tajikistan, Dave. So wow, people might not realize this. They always talk about Alexander the Great getting to to India, but he actually came pretty much right next door to modern day China too. So this this Alexandria Escate or Alexandria the furthest is you know, very far east. But not long after Alexander the Great dies, one of Alexander's generals, Seleucus, takes over and he takes control of the area of Central Asia. So we see a, a role reversal here. There's a small number of Greek nobility now ruling over a larger, larger native population. And we know that that never goes well. So what we see now, again, we're mixing those those cultures up. We see now a Greco-Bactrian culture develops. And, and this is under the Seleucid dynasty? Yeah, the Seleucids. So we're going to talk about that right now. So, you know, basically this Greco-Bactrian culture is pretty fluid. Greeks are mixing with the local culture and pretty soon you see the same thing that we saw in the past. We see a mix that leads to an, an almost an entirely new culture with influence from Greek, Persian, Aryan, and everything else. So to illustrate how the cultures mixed around the area, we're going to go back to Alexander. Dave, have you ever heard the story of Roxana of Bactria? Yeah, she was the one that he uh, he married, right? Yeah, you got it, Dave. I was hoping you might sing the police song for me. Yeah, you know, I here here's my rule. You know, if you ever meet somebody named Roxanne or Roxana, it's very impolite to sing the song because, like, I think that happens to them every ten seconds in the day. They're like, "Hey, my, what's your name? Oh, I'm Roxanne," and then somebody's just like, "Roxanne." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So according so Roxanne to Roxanne, Sting, and then you know. Yeah, okay, Roxana Mary, Roxana Mary Sting, and uh, you know, yeah. So according to the Encyclopedia Ironica, now I didn't know that existed until I was trying to find sources for this, but there, I've Ooh, always heard of that's ironic. 
<laughs> the Encyclopedia Ironica mentions that it was it was said that there was a Bactrian king who fought Alexander the Great and had a beautiful daughter that Alexander the Great fell in love with on first sight with her, and her name was Roxana. So he married her despite his general's objections. Uh, despite general objections or his general's objections. Actually, it was his general's <laughs> objections. So the leader of this this great uh, military force found something to write home to Mom Olympias about in Bactria. So, Dave, yeah. after Alexander the Great's death in Babylon in 323 BCE, Roxana is believed to have murdered Alexander's other widow. But why would she do that, Dave? Wow, I didn't even know he had another widow. He yeah. had two wives? Uh, yeah, and despite the fact that people kind of claimed he wasn't, um, you know, having, he didn't have a lot of women as, as some people claim, but he did have a couple wives. Yes. So she murders the other widow Oh man! because Roxana had born a son to Alexander the great after his death. So she didn't want any competition. Roxana and her son, again, very uniquely named Alexander the fourth. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes people forget Alexander the Great was Alexander the Third. So this is Alexander the Fourth, named after his deceased father. They were protected by Alexander's mother, Olympias, in Macedonia. So they went all the way back to Macedonia. But they were all three of them were eventually killed during the War of the Diadochi. And that people might say you're not saying that name right, Shiloh. I don't really care. I kind of like it that way. The Diadochi. I love that term for the time period after Alexander the Great dies. It's the War of the Diadochi. It's the known as it's known as the War of the Successors. So all the generals, the four generals, four or five yeah, different generals, like Ptolemy and Seleucid yeah. and all those guys. Yeah, exactly. So they'll call that the time period of the War of the Diadochi. I say Diadochi. I've heard it. Diadochi. I've heard other terms too. So <laughs> not even gonna try. So what's interesting at the same time, Dave, that Alexander the Great was moving through Central Asia in the 330s, further east in the area of modern day China, there's pretty much total war. You know, this is the time period in China when it's called the Warring. Is this the Warring States period? Yeah, are we, are we up to that period. yet? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're talking the Warring States period. It covers like sometime from around 480 to 221. So it's a couple hundred years. And again, that's not like set in stone. But you're talking basically the 400s to the 200s is the Warring States period in China. But after Alexander the Great dies in 330 the entire Western Hellenized world goes into total war. And so the Eastern side, China, is in total war. So essentially, you have an entire world at war right now. The Western Hellenized world in the 330s, Alexander the Great dies in the, the 320s. He's dead. It's just a massive war in China, also massive war. So recapping what we've talked about, Alexander the Great is in the area of India during the middle of the Warring States period. He dies, and it sends this whole world into a massive war. And there's a time period in there from about the 320s to the 220s. There's a 100-year time period in there when imperial China slowly solidifies. By about the 220s, China uh, becomes actually unified and creates what we see as an empire. China becomes the China empire. At the same time, in Central Asia we see a lot of different tribes becoming powerful. There's names like the Parthians are gaining power. The Kushans are gaining power in Central Asia. So now we're starting to kind of see a, uh, different areas solidifying again. So China's starting to unify. In um, Central Asia, there's some, there's some uh, different empires that are forming. And we all know out west, 
in the 200s, there's a growing juggernaut on the horizon. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh you're, you're chomping at the bit. Who was it, Dave? <laughs> well, it was Roman. This was the Roman Republic before the Roman Empire. Yes, you got it. But another another empire that sometimes people forget about in India is the Mauryan Empire. And we could dedicate hours to, talk to talking about the Mauryan Empire. But the point for us today is that the Mauryan Empire beats Alexander the Great's general Seleucus. So he's the one that took the eastern side of Alexander's empire. So the Greeks in northern India are now under the control of the Mauryan Empire. And we they're under heavy Indian, Indian influence. And that leads us on a little art trip. Dave, we're going to take a little art trip. We like to call this a, a part of the show, the podcast, Art and Religion Side Trip. So, Dave, we're going to stop over in Gandhara. What do you know about Gandhara, wow. Dave? I have never heard that word. Is that a word? I mean, that's is that a, that's a place. That's that sounds well, like something from a sci-fi movie or something like that. You can't eat it. I know you're. I feel like you're going down the can I eat it route. On a lot well, of like you'll just throw these crazy words out there, and I don't know if it's a person, a place, a thing, or or a know, food. Yeah. So. Yeah. Basically, going back to our old sources like the Rig Veda and the Zoroastrian Avesta, they all talk about Gandhara. It's been around for a long time. They use a slightly different name, but the point is, is that it, it has been around northern India and Pakistan for a long time. So we're stopping here for a moment because in the 200s, mind you, we're talking about now uh, unified China. Uh, we have Rome going on over in the in the west. The Kushan people culture is now in in Central Asia. In the 200s, the mix of the Greek and Indian culture comes to produce what many believe to be the first sculptures of the Buddha. So before this time, there hadn't been a real Buddha in human form. So the Greek-style sculptors are believed to have put Buddha in human form. Now, what's really, really interesting is how these cultures mesh together. In some sculpture, sculptures, there's a mix of Greek religion with the Buddhism. So in some of them, Hercules is behind Buddha protecting him. Whoa. Wait, so, so you're telling me like our, uh, our visual representation of Buddha mm -hmm. is from the Greeks? Well, it, it, it was a mix. So you wouldn't want to just say that it was only the Greeks that produced this. I mean, obviously, the Greeks were starting to adopt Buddhism and, and starting to kind of appreciate that more and more, but mixing it with their own religion. So, you, I mean, the Greeks definitely had with their their sculpting, their, you know, they were known for their ability, their art. You know, anytime you see Greek sculptures, you, you kind of recognize it right away. And so when you look at the art coming out of Gandhara specifically, that's where they kind of start to pinpoint the first human form of Buddha being depicted. And they're pretty sure it was Greeks that were sculpting this. So, Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I, I wouldn't say it necessarily came out of Greeks. I mean, obviously it had a major influence from the people of India, that Mauryan Empire, Gandhara. But... It's an exciting time in world history. So, like I said, in the West, the Roman Republic is slowly on the way to becoming the Roman Empire. Now we're into the, the 200s and the 100s. You know, you think about that time frame there. In the West, you have the, the leaders like Sulla and uh, Marius, Julius Caesar. They're coming up in, in the juggernaut of Rome. In the East, China, the things are pretty stable as well. The Han Dynasty is now established in the 200s. You know, we're talking the, two, the 220s, uh, right around 200. Han China is now in control. But there's a big problem in China. I guess there's a big problem in big China, I guess. Yeah, something like that. So it is, who is that big thorn in the side of China? 
in the uh, 200s, Dave? Uh, Kurt Russell? <laughs> Man, I you know what? That that makes doing this whole podcast worth it right there. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to guess, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to throw it out there. I, I I'm betting it's step people. Is it step people? Yes, but which step people? Oh man, I know this. I should know this. I'm. Which step people is it, Shiloh? The Shang knew. Oh, the Shang, the stirrup people. No, Dave. No, not yet. Okay, okay. Okay. That's well, I mean, years. Uh, no, no. Stirrup people. We're, this is we're talking second century BCE, Dave. Right, right. Okay. So, so yeah, tell us about. So what's going on with the Shang Nu? So the Shang Nu step people, nomadic warriors, and they are very, very. Um, they're giving China a run for its money. You could say. Now the Shang Nu are said to, you know, what what famous later step culture claims to have had ties to the Shang Nu, Dave? Well, the the Huns. Right. Exactly. Now this this would be now the Huns. The Huns don't come for another six hundred years. Or, or well, you know about five to six hundred years later. So the Shang Nu in the two hundreds are giving China a really hard time. So, you know, again, we're not it's not like we're saying these are the original Huns. They are they're pretty much a different people altogether. But um we want to talk about how Han China wants to beat the Shang Nu once and for all. So we're gonna talk about Emperor Wu of Han. Emperor Wu of Han comes up with a plan, Dave. Emperor Wu is a very interesting and successful emperor. Another name you might hear for him is Emperor Wudi. I saw that name also in some of the references. So he's he's every bit as successful as the Roman Emperor Augustus, Dave. Yeah. But to Westerners, he's just not as well known. You know, Emperor Wu ruled for 54 years and expanded China greatly, as we're about to see. So sometimes you, you forget, man, over there, there was some amazing... Uh, leaders of state for China. So Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu sends out a scouting party to look for the for allies to help fight against the fierce Shang Nu. The man leading this expedition is Zheng Qian. Oh, I've uh, heard of this hopefully, guy. Hopefully, I just nailed that pronunciation for all the people listening. For all six of the people that hear this, hey, I hope I got that right. <laughs> and Zheng Qian goes with his trusted Shang Nu guide, and this expedition makes the Lewis and Clark trip to Americans that know the Lewis and Clark journey. It makes that look like a little walk in the park, Dave. Zheng Qian sets out through the Jade Gate at the western end of the Great Wall of China, and he's gone for 13 years. At one point, he's even captured by the Shang Nu, and he finally finds the people that he's looking for to ally with, and they don't even want to help him. So, you know, not all is lost, though, Dave. Who do you think this Han Chinese explorer comes across in the area of Central Asia? Well, he starts meeting people from the West, correct? Yeah, and who in particular? Oh man, I have. I, who does no, he mean? You, what's that? I think. Yeah, I heard you, Dave. Yeah, no, I heard that. Did Did you say you were, Romans? If <laughs> If you were thinking the last independent Greek city state, <gasps> then you were right, Dave. Man, now we're we're talking about the the late two hundreds, almost one hundreds time frame here, Dave. So you know we're going to say that around the one thirties, one twenties BCE. So by this point. Rome is conquering Greece, so there's really no independent Greek, um, you know, uh, city-states. So here, this Han Chinese explorer comes across the last independent Greek city-state, we could say, independent Greeks, 
and he comes across Alexandria the furthest. Remember that city that Alexandria established. So he's intrigued. This is what he writes. He says, the people are settled on the land, plowing the fields and growing rice and wheat. They also make wine out of grapes. The people live in houses and in fortified cities. There are some 70 or more cities of various size in the region. So he basically talks about what he sees here, and it's it's a pretty established culture right there. Yeah, so he, he basically was the one that was able to like tell China, hey, they're civilized people to the West. You got it, Dave. It's the first recorded contact between the civilizations of the Far East and the Mediterranean of the West. So it's revolutionary stuff. So Zheng Qian finds in Bactria objects like, you know, bamboo and, and cloth and things made in China. So he knows he, stuff is already flowing through here. He's not the first person to do it. But again, from the encyclopedia now Britannica, he's credited with being the first man to bring back a reliable account of Central Asia to China. You're right, Dave. That's like hugely important. So with that report comes the report of the heavenly horses, Dave. The heavenly horses. Now, you and I were talking right before we started recording about Mr. Ed. So if I was thinking of heavenly horses, Mr. Ed is pretty high up there for me. But I feel like the heavenly, the story of the heavenly horses, is this a story you've heard before, Dave? We've talked about this before, but I don't know if we've ever fit. Have we fit this into the uh, the podcast, the heavenly horses? No, it, it happened. You're, we're talking about uh, actually what's it's going to happen in the year 104 BCE. So it's a little before what we've talked about. But the war of the heavenly horses is what's about to happen here. So I think it gets a little blown out of proportion in my own personal opinion. Hey. But it's a great story. What? Sorry, I had to throw in hay, you know, horses. Hey, so, hey, yeah. hey's bad for joke. horses. <laughs> Sorry, now, I've had a lot of bad jokes in this podcast. I'm just going to I'm gonna stop trying. Just do your thing, Sean. This is awesome. <laughs> what are you talking about, Dave? This is great because Jung Chan tells of these heavenly horses that are so powerful they sweat blood, Dave. That's like... That's like just raw power. And, and so, were these horses from the back Bactria, the region we're talking about? You got it. Yeah. So this is what he finds when he goes, when he makes it into to actual, um, that Alexandria the furthest. And then he goes a little further down into Bactria. So um, we, now it's, like I said, it's a, it might be a little bit over-exaggerated, but it makes a nice story that these, it's actually, in fact, it's interesting. There's actual horse sculptures in China depicting these Fergana Valley horses. If you look that up, Fergana horses. These are these majestic heavenly horses. Now these horses are head to, said to help the Chinese develop their cavalry to fight the Xiongnu. Now this is where I think it gets a little blown out of proportion. I think the Han Chinese would have beat the Xiongnu, but it kind of gets played up that these heavenly horses helped develop them militarily, helped the Han Chinese develop militarily. Now there's just one catch to these horses, other than the fact that the blood sweating thing was probably just some nasty parasites. The real thing is, is that the people of Alexandria the furthest didn't want to give up their heavenly horses. They're like, uh, no, we'd like to keep them. Thank you. So basically what happens is China goes and fights the people of Alexandria the furthest. They, they fight these Greeks. Now, real quick, if you're looking this up and you want to learn a little more, another name for Alexandria the furthest given to it by the Chinese is the Daiyuan. So Daiyuan is the Chinese name for Alexandria the Furthest, and that is basically translates to the great Ionians. So Ionians being Greeks. So this is another way that the Chinese referred to this area, all relating back to Greeks. So in 104 BCE, the Chinese send out a full military force, not once, but twice. And basically the end of the matter is, is that Alexandria the Furthest eventually 
they come under the control of the Chinese Han Empire. So the Chinese extend their control all the way into Central Asia. And in the grand scheme of things, this is what really links East and West. We now see an established network known famously as the Silk, the Silk Road. Road. So, yes. Zheng Xian, he helped explore what would become a route that would spread goods and knowledge and ideas throughout the known world. Asia, Central Asia was a, the pin that linked the world. Zheng Xian was the brave adventurer who dared to go where others feared. So I'd be at fault, Dave, if I didn't mention my favorite animal in this area. And you mentioned it earlier. You kind of let the camel out of the bag, Dave. <laughs> it's the Bactrian camel. The, wait, the camel is your favorite animal? I said it's my favorite animal from this area. That's oh, okay. partly because not a lot of other animals live in this area. I do like horses, but the Bactrian camel is amazing. That's the camel that has two humps, and hence the famous song, The Bactrian Camel Has Two Humps. The Bactrian Camel Has Two Humps. The Bactrian Camel Has Two Humps. So ride. Bactrian Camels ride. Okay, so the thing, these things are amazing, Dave. you got to look them up. They're like tanks. They're I thought literally... you were going to make the, uh, I thought you were going to make the what hump joke. <laughs> <laughs> so... Now, here's the thing, Dave. Um, these yeah. Bactrian camels are literally the ships of the sea. And everyone talks about the silk routes, and they forget about how they, they moved all the, all the different goods and, and things. It was through these powerful Bactrian camels. And they were the, the means to support and transport everything. So they're amazing animals. Now, a little-known fact about the Bactrian camel, Dave, is that it may or may not have inspired the sound of a beloved science fiction character, Dave. It's time for that Wait, part of our podcast, Dave. Really? No, it what? Is. I have no idea what it is. Go, it's go, part go of ahead. that. T- it's that time in our podcast to ask Dave that that famous game we always play. Is it Chewbacca or is it a camel? <laughs> really? I thought you, I didn't know Chewbacca came from a camel. Uh, Dave, I didn't say that, Dave. <laughs> okay. Uh, th- this podcast in no way endorses that thought. But Dave, you are now going to hear some different two different sounds, and I want you to tell me: Is it Chewbacca or is it a camel? Okay. Are you ready, Dave? I'm ready. I have to put my phone up to the microphone, and I know you're watching this, so here we go. Okay. Okay, Dave. Is that a camel, or is that Chewbacca? Uh, Chew- was that Chewbacca? Oh, Dave. Okay, Dave, here we go. That was a camel. That was a back camel. Here oh, we go. wow. Here's, okay. here's round two, Dave. Oh, that's that's Chewbacca. Okay, there you go. You, you redeemed it, Dave. You redeemed Pete, it. Now, isn't Peter that kind of, isn't that kind of um, amazing? <laughs> how close a Bactrian camel sounds to Chewbacca? Yeah, that's super close. Well, that's that I, that kind of struck me as um, a fun way to uh, play a game. I think uh, I'm going to leave it at that now. So Alexander the Great pushes <laughs> east in the 330s. You know what? Emperor... I, I I think it's funny that Chewbacca came up organically in both. My I last know. podcast. Yeah. I, yeah, I started thinking about it. I was like, man, is there a way we could include Chewbacca in every single podcast in from every here on episode? Out? Yeah, I think if I think if I tr- like if I really tried, I could. Well, I don't know if thing. it would. It would be I'm naturally. sure Chewbacca has a larger fan base than we do. So if we could piggyback on that, I'm, we'd be doing good. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, going back to it, Alexander the Great, he pushes east in the 330s, and Emperor Wu push, pushes west in the in the 100s time period. There, the the uh, first century uh, BCE. And so now we see now that, that connection between East and West. 
And I know you can't help it, Dave, but at the same time, out west in Rome, what's going on in the first century BCE in Rome, Dave? Oh, you got like all that craziness with like, you got Julius Caesar, Mm -hmm. you've got, uh, you know, Cleopatra, who was a descendant of Ptolemy, who we talked about before, one of uh, Caesar's four generals, like when he went over in Egypt, like you got Mark Antony, you've got uh, all that, you got the civil wars, you've got Crassus, you know, uh, Pompey. Yeah, you've got the whole like stuff in Gaul and yeah, that's but basically all that stuff. That's that's a lot of stuff to think about for future uh, episodes on who in the world are you talking about? Now, uh, just real quick, some people have talked about what if uh, Rome ever fought China? The closest thing we ever get is to this this Greek uh, these last Greek peoples fighting china and it really wasn't that great of a fight it wasn't like a phalanx went out to meet the chinese they just basically attacked their city so it it wasn't really a good show of power by the greeks but yes the chinese did end up meeting the greeks and i love the the history around geographic locations you know you think about if if the walls could talk and if this area could tell us the area around bactria could tell us all the things it's seen we'd be beside ourselves dave so There is a city today that takes its name from the word Bactria, and it's in roughly the same area, and it's called Balkh. I do not know if I'm saying that name even right, because it is in Arabic. And another area known today... Oh, man, I should ask... Oh, sorry. I'll ask my wife later. (laughs) Another area that you can look up on your Google Maps is known as Badakhshan. Badakhshan. So... I hope I'm saying that close to right. So if you were just a Google Map Badakhshan, you'd come up with an area, Dave... That I want to ask you now. Do you know where we were talking about, Dave? Do you know the land that's seen everything from Aryans to Persians to Greeks to Indians to Chinese to Hinduism, Zoroastrian, Buddhism, Islam, more Bactrian camels, maybe even some science fiction inspiration, Dave? Do you know what modern day place we're talking about? Well, Shiloh, where in the world are you talking about? We're talking about Afghanistan, Dave. What? <laughs> so some of the things we mentioned today might not be the first things that come to your mind when you hear the word Afghanistan, but it's an area of diversity and cultural variety. And so by no means have we told the whole story of Afghanistan. If you want to hear more, drop us a line. How do people even get in contact with us, Dave? Do they send us a message in, in, in a bottle? They throw something at our house, a rock with a paper tied to a brick in our You know, our usually what, what they do is they email me and then I give them your home phone number. Okay, good. Yeah, all right. So... Yes. Another quick thing I wanted to say, Dave, was I wanted to address the question. If someone says, hey, where are you getting all your sources for this information? That was a, that was a lot of stuff you just plowed through. I'm going to give you two quick good ones. I, of course, I mentioned the Encyclopedia Britannica and Ironica, but there's a great book by Stephen Burke uh, called The Middle East. And Craig Benjamin put out an amazing book in 2018 called Empires of Ancient Eurasia, The First Silk Roads Era. And that was hugely helpful. So... Just a couple sources if you want to look it up. Man, thank you, Shiloh. That was amazing. That was I, I love that. I appreciate I, it. I think we went on quite a journey there, Dave. I did not know how long that was going to last, but I see that you just heard me talk for 50 minutes, and I, I almost want to apologize, but if anyone listens to this, that was a heck of a trip, Dave. Yeah, that was great. Man, I did not expect Afghanistan. That was pretty awesome. Okay, well, so are we done with this episode? You got it, Dave. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of, well, not who in the world, but where in the world. (music) 